0: Great. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would, please, as we begin week number two through our new series. If you need a church Bible, they're down the center aisle. Uh, it's page 588. <clears throat> and I'm going to read from verse one to the end of verse five. This is God's word to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Would you just bow your heads in prayer as we come around God's word, asking him to bless the reading and preaching of his word. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we thank you for the preciousness of your promises that we hold in our hands. We pray that you would in. Impress them afresh upon our hearts, that we might behold wonderful things from your word that strengthen our faith as we follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. For your sake, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. In 1952, Florence Chadwick, you might have heard this story before, but Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of Catalina Island, determined to swim the 26 miles between the island and the shore of mainland California. She'd already become the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways, and on this particular morning, the the weather was foggy and chilly, and she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. She swam for 15 hours and then begged to be pulled out of the water. Her mother, who was in a boat alongside, told her that she was close and that she could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she just stopped swimming and they had to pull her out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore was only half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think... If I could have seen the shore, I would have kept going and made it. Perhaps this morning you can relate to those words. Our lives can be a bit foggy, can't they? Uh, We're struck by the fog of trouble, worries, anxieties, doubts, nagging questions, health problems, depression. Perhaps it's unemployment or financial uncertainty. Maybe it's the strained relationships that we experience persecution for the sake of Christ or the loss of a loved one, we all live foggy lives. <clears throat> and the result is that we can lose sight of the shore. And We can be tempted to give up. We can be tempted to think, well, you know, I just don't have enough strength left. So physically and emotionally, we, swap, we stop swimming. And someone needs to pull us out of life, we think. Get me out of here. The first century Christians that Peter is writing to who were living in modern-day Turkey could certainly identify with Florence Chadwick's experience. As elect exiles that we saw last week from verse 2, these Christians who were following Jesus in a world that didn't were refugees, literally refugees. They were people who had been alienated from the world that they were born into because they were living at odds with the values of this world and they were living at odds with the the priorities of this world and they were living at odds with the truth of this world and they were viewed with suspicion by this world and they were hated and rejected by this world and they were beginning to experience, as we said last week, increasing opposition and persecution. The swim against the cultural tide was beginning to bear down on them and they were exhausted and troubled. In a fog. <clears throat> and so Peter writes this letter to help them navigate the fog and to help them be strengthened to swim against the tide. He, he wants his, his readers, he wants the first readers and us this morning to see the shore so that when we are in the fog, we don't give up with just a half mile to go. He wants to point us to a greater reality than our current experience in this life. He wants to point us to beyond our trials, to see beyond what we have right in front of our noses, to see the shore of his promises to us. And so he wants to he's writing this this book to lift our eyes, lift our perspective away from ourselves, away from our own frustrations, away from our own difficulties, away from the trials and the challenges of life so that our perspective isn't isn't determined by our enemies or by our circumstances. He wants our perspective instead to be determined by God and his mighty work on our behalf. Now, as we work our way into the book, and if you pick up uh, Everyday Church, the, the Tim Chester book on the book table, you will discover, because it's all about First Peter, you will discover from the Scriptures, and adding that book in as well, that Peter is going to write much instruction and specific counsel to Christians about how to live in a world that opposes God. Okay, He's going to write that, but before he gets into that, he begins at the beginning in the right place by pointing to truth that will help them and us think about living in a hostile world and he's going to answer this question for us this one here's the question <clears throat> that is posed by the text implicitly that he's going to explicitly answer is this where do you look for for hope when your earthly prospects are dim where do you look for for hope when your earthly prospects are dim? And the answer that Peter's going to give us is going to fortify our hearts and our minds and strengthen our souls because he's going to lay a foundation of hope in the midst of hostility. He's going to give us wonderful promises to cling to when life is hard. And he's going to give us wonderful fuel for our worship that we can enter into uh, no matter what we face what we're going to learn is this. I I tried to capture it in one sentence. Hopefully, it's going to come up. And it's this. Pilgrims in a hostile world are strengthened and sustained by God through having a clear vision of our new identity and our new destiny. That's ours in Christ. Okay, so pilgrims like us walking in a hostile world are going to be strengthened and sustained by by God, through having a clear vision of what He's won for us, what He's done for us in Jesus Christ, it's a new identity and a new destiny. So there are two points this morning. We need a clear vision of our new identity and our new destiny in order to be strengthened and sustained to be pilgrims in a hostile world. So let's begin with our new identity. Look with me at verses one and two, because He'd already hinted at this last week, hadn't He, when we looked at it? When He calls them in verse two, uh, sorry, in verse one, elect exiles. Now, we said they were people chosen by God, but living away from their homeland of heaven, just like us. Chosen and part of the people of God, but living away from our homeland. But the question that should come to us uh, is, how do people who are living apart from God come to be Christians? How did they, Gentile pagans, who were brought up in a culture that worshipped foreign gods, that lived for themselves, that engaged in debauchery. Sinners, how did they come to be God's chosen people? They weren't sinners just by what they did either, is it? It wasn't just deeds and actions and thoughts and words that made them sinners. But since Genesis chapter 3, everybody who is born, all human beings, are sinners by nature, not just by deed. By nature, we're hostile to God. By nature, we're enemies of God. By nature, we're at war with the God who made us. And because of that nature, we are unwilling and unable to come towards God in any meaningful way which would please him or commend ourselves to him or call his favor down upon our lives because we are sinners by nature. We stand in, in opposition to him by the very fact of who we are because Adam was our head. And the Bible doesn't just call us unwilling and unable to come towards God. It actually, it actually refers to us in much more serious terms as dead in our sins and in our transgressions against God. So how does such a dead person come to be alive and elect as an exile? Well, verse 3 gives us the answer, doesn't it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You come to be an elect exile by being born again. By experiencing this new birth, this this new birth where God takes the initiative to produce new life in sinners who are dead and opposed to him. It's a mighty miracle, a working of God's grace, we're told, where in a miracle of mercy, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and lives and brings us into a living union with the living Jesus and in so doing, imparts the life of Christ into our dead hearts, making us alive. And in making us alive, he gives us new hearts with new desires and new affections, and we become new creations. We're reborn. Literally, the word here is re-begetted us. God has re-begetted us. He's reborn us. He's remade us. He's renewed us. He's recreated us. So when we think about being born again, it's not that Christians just turn over a new leaf or they try really hard or they, um, they adopt a new outlook on life. No, when we become Christians, Christ, through his spirit, according to the will of the Father, brings us into a completely new order of existence. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, The old goes and the new comes. And behold, we are new creations. New birth brings new life and it brings a new identity as the people of God. With a new father and a new family that we get to be part of. And did you notice how it comes about? It's all according to his great mercy. Mercy is such a sweet word, isn't it? We've been singing about it this morning. We've been witnessing it as we broke bread together. Mercy is such a sweet word. When you do something and you sin against someone and they turn to you and they say, I forgive you. Isn't that sweet? How how much sweeter when God does that to sinners? Where mercy is is God acting with a, a warm compassion towards those who deserve wrath. Mercy is the tender of God which restrains his righteous hand. And we're saved and we experience the new birth all because of mercy. Where God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Where he restrains his righteous hand that's set against us and ex- instead extends grace to us. And that righteous hand is wielded against someone else. Mercy is a sweet word, and mercy is the reason that we are born again. Mercy is the reason that dead pagan Gentiles like you and me come to be elect exiles. It's a new identity that we're given. Let me just say this. Listen, as a church, we, we, we love the doctrines of grace. We, if you read the website, and I don't know whether anybody actually does, but you know, some people might read the website, and they certainly will when Marco's redesigned it for us, and that gets launched uh, because it'll be fantastic But on the website, we might say, we're reformed, we believe in the doctrines of grace. And we've got to just be careful about that, because although we do believe in the doctrines of grace, and although we are reformed, we've got to be careful with our theology that we don't just see God as some cold and mechanical despot, heartlessly pulling the levers of creation just to orchestrate the things that he wants to do. Or like Churchill bent over a table with a a map of Europe over him, just kind of, mindlessly moving pieces here there and everywhere. God, God in his sovereignty is, He doesn't work like that. He works according to mercy. A, a tender compassion of a God who loves sinners, whose heart beats to save the guilty. And when he does that, we become new creations. Now, look at this. The new birth has a goal as well, doesn't it? We're born again, if you notice, in verse 3, <clears throat> to a living hope. You know, births are wonderful, aren't they? You know, I've been through six births, a little bit traumatized by some of them. But, you know, they, You know, when, you, when, you, when you're in the room and, and a birth takes place, it's glorious. We celebrate it. We send people cards and gifts when they have babies. But do you know what happens after the birth? You bring your baby home To life in your family. You don't just leave the baby there. Oh, births are lovely. No, births lead to life, to new life that has hope. It has this baby in your arms, has potential and opportunities, and it's going to experience life. It's going to experience hope, and that's what the new birth does to us. We don't just stay as babies. We grow into our new life, and we face new potential and new opportunities and new possibilities, But the fog of life can stop us from seeing those. And certainly in these first century readers, they couldn't see through the fog. They couldn't make out the shore. They couldn't see beyond the persecution, the, the clouds of persecution that were gathering on the horizon. And that they were coming towards us. And so Peter assures them, he writes to them, new life brings new and glorious opportunities. We are born into a living hope. In the threat of persecution, in the threat of increasing opposition, believers like these first, this first audience and like us this morning, we can look to the future, Peter tells us, with an eager and a confident expectation that there is inestimable blessing that God has for each of us we're born again to a living hope we don't become christians through uh, and, and we just live lives of blind optimism or kind of wishful thinking or baseless superstition where we just hope everything's going to work out in the end no we're born to a living hope a real and vital and substantive and enduring hope that paul uh, that peter tells us is based on something that is real and living and substantive and enduring did you notice that? We experience the new birth that gives, uh, breeds in us a living hope. And it's all grounded and secured by something that is real and vital and substantive and enduring. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at that in verse 3. <clears throat> Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And notice in the verses that we read from one to five, Jesus is referenced four times in five verses. Peter can't get enough of pointing us to Jesus because Jesus is our living hope for elect exiles in a wor- following Jesus in a world that doesn't. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus, the original exile, if you like the original elect exile. What was Jesus? He was God's anointed and appointed Messiah. He was chosen by God to leave behind his heavenly home, to come and sojourn on earth amidst the people who hated him and rejected him and ultimately persecuted him to death on a cross. But in that death on a cross he bore the sins of sinners like you and me and he bore the righteous wrath of god and he bore the punishment that for sins that he didn't commit and he died on a cross but then as we've been singing all morning on the third day he rose again to new life and his resurrection is a sign that his sacrifice for sins was sufficient and accepted by the Father. And in rising from the dead, He rose victoriously and He rose triumphantly over everything that opposes God and threatens us. Our Redeemer lives. And though the world threatens to rob believers of their life and their liberty, and though it threatens to crush us under the weight of opposition and persecution, our Redeemer lives. And because He was raised, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what the worst is that they can do to us, which, by the way, is just kill us, death doesn't have the last word because Jesus rose from the dead. And therefore, all who are united to Him in faith will also rise from the dead. He's our living hope. Death could not hold him. And even if we face persecution to the ultimate degree of being martyred, death will not hold us. Because we have a living hope. Because of a living Savior. So perhaps you're here this morning and your your soul is dry and you lack a little bit of warmth in worship and you just stand and you sing some of these songs and you're going through the motions. Or maybe you stand there and you can't really sing because you're plagued with doubts and questions about, does God really love me? Or maybe it's what Naomi shared at the front here from Isaiah, and you stand there and you're just so aware of the crimson stains that you can't believe that Christ could wash you white as snow. Peter comes and he says, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been born again. You've got a new identity, a new heart, a new life. That's God's love for you. It's by his mercy to you. Where are you going to look for hope when your earthly prospects are dim? While pilgrims are strengthened and sustained by a clear vision of our new identity. We've been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of a living savior. This new birth and this new life and we've entered into a new family, and we've got a new father, this new identity then creates a new destiny for us. And that's our second point this morning. The new identity that we've been given also gives us a new identity. In verses 3 through 5, Peter elaborates on what this new identity uh, brings us. It brings us an inheritance. Our destiny is an inheritance. In a similar way to just at the right time, I and Claire will leave our children an inheritance. And in just the same way as at just the right time, our parents will, unless they end up in a home, leave us an inheritance. And I'm just waiting for the day when I've told June I'm going to have a hot tub in our garden with a little in memorial of June Bowley on the fence. Uh, <laughs> I'm written out of the will. There we go. So at, at just the right time, We'll receive an inheritance from our earthly fathers. We'll give inheritances to our earthly children. So the Lord has promised an inheritance for us. Now, this isn't an inheritance of. Financial treasure like we might think about it in the 21st century. This, this word inheritance that Peter references here in verse 4 is weighted with Old Testament expectation and understanding. These, these first audiences would have, would have known because they'd been taught by their, their leaders and because they held an Old Testament in their hands. They would have come to know that God's promise of inheritance was first made to Abraham in Genesis 12. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you... Descendants as numerous as the stars, and I'm going to lead you into a land where you will dwell as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. He promised them the land of Canaan, a land that he told them was flowing with milk and honey, it was full of abundant goodness and glorious things. It was a place where these Old Testament saints would settle and live in safety and harmony, protected by the God who was theirs. It was the promised land, wasn't it? It was the promised land. And you can read about the the conquest of the promised land and the possession of the promised land in in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. But as we read on into our Old Testament, although God made this promise to them of uh, to To Abraham, to be a numerous people and to have descendants and to have a land that would be their own. And as that passed into, into the possession, that promise passed into the possession of the Old Testament people of God, we know as we read on that there was this constant cycle where the people of God rejected God. They turned away from him in unfaithfulness and disobedience and it brought God's judgment upon them. What did he say? You read it in numbers. You disobey me and literally you will be vomited out of the land. You'll go into exile. And isn't that what happened as the cycles got worse and the unfaithfulness and the disobedience continued year after year and decade after decade. God led foreign powers to invade Israel and he vomited them out of the land into exile in Babylon. But then the Old Testament prophets begin to speak again of the old promises. There's whispers of the old promises made to Abraham and the prophets begin to speak about a day that was coming where God would act decisively to deal with his people's sin, where God would act decisively to deal with the people's idolatry and unfaithfulness, where God would act to raise up a righteous king to lead his people in righteousness, where God would act to give his people new hearts and new lives and fill them with his spirit so that they might walk in his ways and that God would raise up a forever forever king who would forever reign and rule in, over his people so that they could dwell in safety. And these promises were expanded beyond Israel and beyond the national borders of that piece of land in the Middle East to include other nations and other peoples. Right down to you and me this morning and the crowning promise And the expansion of that promise that began in seed form to Abraham in Genesis 12 comes to fruition with the promise that God's people will one day dwell in a new heavens and a new earth. Experiencing eternal life in the presence of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that that will happen. That's the beginning of this new creation, this recreation. It's the signal and the start and the guarantee that all of the promises of God in the Old Testament that are then promised through Christ will come to their full and final fruition. We have an inheritance. The promise of eternal life in the presence of God forever. Then Peter tries to describe it in verse four. Go back to there. He just tries to describe it, but he just can't seem to do it justice. He can't seem to get his arms around it and describe it in a way that we can comprehend because it's really beyond our comprehension. So he just begins to tell us what it's not like. By way of contrast, he begins to say, well, I can't really explain it, but let me tell you what it's not like. And he uses three words to describe it. Now, these aren't synonyms that you could just use interchangeably. He's chosen these specifically because he wants to to inform us with distinct meanings. So he says it's imperishable. That means it's free from decay. It's free from death. It won't perish. It won't rot. It won't be destroyed. So our inheritance is indestructible. Then he says it's undefiled. That means it's free from the pollution of sin and the pollution of evil. This inheritance that we're going into, that Christ has promised and won and secured for us through his resurrection, is is an inheritance that can't be ruined or stained by sin. It's pure. It's unfading. That means it's, it's free from the ravages of time. It doesn't deteriorate or break down or lose its lustre or its beauty or its glory. It's forever glorious imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's free from death, it's free from sin, it's free from the ravages of time, it's always indestructible and pure and glorious. And these three words are supposed to combine to give us this image of what we long for and what we await and what is ours to come in in certainty. What is our new destiny? It's permanence and perfection in a world completely other to what we currently experience it's a glorious future. It's a glorious inheritance. It's better than a hot tub in your garden. And verse four tells us that it's kept in heaven for us. (coughs) Excuse me. This new destiny, this future inheritance, this glorious, certain, sure, secure future is kept for us. It's protected for us by God himself. It's guarded, it's sorry, it's kept for us in heaven. So God is keeping it for us. He's protecting it. As sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ was, our future inheritance is. That's what Peter uh, Peter's trying to communicate to us here. <clears throat> God has reserved a table for you in heaven. Just like when you want to go out to a restaurant, you call up the restaurant in advance and you reserve a table and they put a little plaque on that table that says reserved and they don't let anybody else sit at that table because that's your place. God has done that for us at the banquet feast in heaven. He's reserved a table for us and no one and nothing is going to jeopardize it because he's keeping it. He's keeping it. The God of all sovereignty and power and goodness whose heart beats with a tender compassion for sinners is keeping your place at the table. With all of his infinite power, he's protecting our inheritance. So when Peter says, where do you look for? Where do you look to for hope when your earthly prospects are dim? Well, you look at what God has done. He's given you the new birth, and you look at what God is doing. He's keeping your inheritance safe for you. But he's not only just keeping the inheritance. If you read on, it says, He's keeping this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. You know, sometimes we, we can sit and we read the Bible and we say, Wow, that's great. Yeah, Peter, I get that. I hear what you're saying. God's keeping an inheritance for us. That's wonderful. God's good. Believe that. But am I going to make it? Am I going to make it to the end? Am I going to endure? Or will I, physically and emotionally exhausted, give up and need to be pulled out of the water? Will the fog... And the swim against the counter-cultural tide, will that, will I just drown? Will I make it? Ever had that thought? I do. I've had that thought. You know, because what's my biggest problem in life? It's me. I'd like to say it was the kids or the dog. But our biggest problem in life is the person staring back at us in the mirror. Will we make it? Will we endure? Well, Peter gives us hope here. You know, it it, it is possible. It is possible to have an inheritance set aside and reserved for you, and yet an heir dies before he can attain that inheritance. It is possible, if we go back to our restaurant reservation, it is possible to call up the restaurant and say, I'd like a table for eight at seven o'clock tonight, please. And then the car breaks down and you can't make it. Or something worse. But Peter here tells us, not only is God keeping our inheritance, he's also guarding us so that we make it to the end. Did you notice that in verse 5? We are being guarded with the same infinite power that God is keeping our inheritance in heaven. He is guarding us through faith. For a salvation, and when he talks about a salvation, Peter's emphasis is always into the future about what is coming. So often the Bible talks about salvation in the past, what God has done, and justification and in rescuing us. That's salvation as well. But Peter here is he's speaking about a salvation that is yet to come. It's the final fruition of salvation that is ours, which will be revealed in the last times. God is keeping that for us there, but he's also keeping us and taking us to it. He's guarding the treasure and he's guarding us so that one day at the right time we will experience and enjoy the treasure. There's like a perfect symmetry here. God's guarding the treasure. He's guarding us. God is keeping the, the inheritance and he's, there's nothing that will keep us from the inheritance. He's doing both things to bring them together at just the right time. At just the right time. The word guard here is a, is a military term. It means to set up a fort and put soldiers around you to protect you. And when I was preparing, I was thinking about that story. Um, do you remember the story in, in uh, the Old Testament? I think it's, is it Elijah or Elisha? I should have checked this. It just came to me now. Uh, it's not in my notes. But, you know, he's talking to his servant, and there, there's, there's, there's a threat of persecution. There's a threat of danger against uh, Elijah or Elisha and his servant. And he says, look up to the hills. And as the, as the servant looks around, he sees this, doesn't he, this godly army surrounding the threat and protecting God's people from the opposition. That's the kind of image that, this, that guarding is supposed to invoke here. That God is guarding his people. He set up soldiers. He set up a military garrison. He set up a fort to protect us from every kind of onslaught and attack that we might face in a hostile world. Imagine the effect of this. Imagine as they read this, God is guarding us. God is protecting us. Imagine the effect on this small and insignificant minority of Christians on the edge of the empire. Right on the fringes, not at the center. They feel like the long-forgotten, long-lost brother of the family, perhaps. Currently experiencing abuse and mistreatment and unkindness and ridicule and shame for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter comes along with this letter and he says, listen, don't look at the fog. Don't look at what's going on around you. Look at the shore. See what God is doing. See what lies beyond. There's an inheritance that is yours, that is kept in heaven for you. It's better than anything that you can imagine. It's better than your wildest dreams. It's beyond them. And if you keep going, keep going, Keep going. And if you can't keep going, don't worry, because God's got you. And he'll keep you going. And he'll strengthen you. And he'll preserve you. And he'll protect you. He'll keep energizing your faith. Do you see that? That's how God uh, keeps guarding us. He uses his power to guard us through faith. He keeps energizing our faith and our trust in him. And so when we face rejection, when we face danger, when we th- face threat, whatever might befall us, God is with us. He's around us. He's set up a fort. He's calling his soldiers to guard us. And he will protect us to the very end, to that, that time when salvation, in its full and final form, will be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. <clears throat> He says, don't focus on the here and now. Focus on the there and then. Look beyond. See the shore. God has an inheritance for you. For you who have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a promise that there will never be hardships. This is not a promise that there will never be trials. This is not a promise that there will never be suffering or difficulties in the life of a Christian. They experienced it. Uh, You know, Not too long after Peter wrote, Emperor Nero started burning Christians at the stake and feeding them to lions. They faced persecution. God didn't exempt them from it, but he was with them in it. Peter himself would go on to experience persecution. God didn't exempt him from it, but he was with him in it. And we too. We might lose jobs. We might lose houses. We might not get that promotion. We might lose our material wealth. We might be incarcerated and locked up and lose our freedom. One day we might even have to die. Our faith in Jesus Christ. We're not exempt from it, but Peter tells us God is with us in it. We are continually, the term here being guarded, it's a continually. We are being continually guarded by God's power, and His guarding activity will not come to an end until that final day when jesus returns and he will make all things new and he will fix everything that is broken and he will put an end to everything that opposes god and threatens us he will cast uh, he will deal with all sin decisively he will cast satan into the hell into hell he will put an end to death and we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth he will be our god and we shall be his people And there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. He will wipe away every tear. And we will live with him in an imperishable, undefiled, unfading glory forever. Where do we look for for hope when our earthly prospects look dim? Pilgrims who make it are strengthened and sustained by God because he gives us a clear vision of our identity and our destiny. And no trial, no persecution, no opposition can steal that away from us because he's guarding it and guarding us. Now, what's our response? Well, verse three, it's a call of worship. Blessed be the God of God. And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Got a new identity. You got the promise of a new destiny. Here's what you do in this life. You praise God. That's what we're going to do now. So if the band want to come back, we're going to sing. We're going to offer loud praises to God because of who he is and what he's done for us. While the band come back, let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning that you have given each and every one of us a new identity and a new destiny. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are now being and will continue to be guarded through faith. For that day of salvation that will be revealed when Christ appears. Thank you for that hope. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.